Well, it is a, a joy to be here with you tonight. It truly is. And uh, I'm, I'm always very honored anytime I have an opportunity to preach God's Word. It is also terrifying for me to be here. And uh, I say that not in the sense so much of the fear of public speaking, but just the weight of the task. Anytime a man gets up to preach, that is a task that should terrify him because of the weight of the responsibility. There is no greater responsibility, uh, no weightier task than to preach God's Word. God is spirit, and he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And uh, so it is incumbent upon me to rightly divide God's Word. And dear ones, let me say right up here at, at the onset, at the beginning, that as we progress through tonight and tomorrow, in all likelihood, I may step on some toes. And I may name some names of people that maybe you have uh, thought highly of before, have listened to before. Maybe not so much in, in this audience, because I think most everybody here comes from a doctrinally sound church. But maybe those who might be listening or watching this on DVD years in the future, other parts of the world, I uh, may step on some toes. Let me, let me say that that is not my goal. My goal is not to step on anyone's toes. I'm not out here to ruffle anyone's feathers in and of itself. Uh, but I, I give this pledge to you. I give this pledge to you that everything that I teach you, I will be teaching from my very best understanding of God's Word. From my very best understanding of God's Word. I do give you that pledge. And God's Word must be our authority for everything that we believe theologically and everything that we practice. So uh, that pledge I do give to you. This seminar is entitled Clouds Without Water. And Clouds Without Water is a reference in the book of Jude, verse 12. Jude, short little book. It's already been referenced tonight. And Jude refers to false teachers in a number of different ways. He says that they are men who are hidden reefs in your love feast. They feast with you without fear, caring only for themselves. And then he says that they are clouds without water. And the picture is that false teachers have the appearance of having some nourishment, but no nourishment ever falls from them. No sustenance ever comes from them. False teachers leave the ground below them dry and parched. And so that's one of the ways in which Jude describes false teachers. And Clouds Without Water, this seminar specifically, is dealing with what is known as the Word of Faith movement, and the New Apostolic Reformation movement. The Word of Faith movement is the proper name given to a movement that is more commonly known as the Health and Wealth Gospel, the Prosperity Gospel, Name and Enclaimment Gospel, basically the doctrine that says it is always God's will for a Christian to be wealthy, and it is always God's will for a Christian to be physically healed. We should never be sick. Or, if we do get sick, physical healing is guaranteed provided that we have enough faith. And this word faith theology is, is led by people such as Benny Hinn, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, Creflo Dollar, Jesse Duplantis, Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Steve Muncy, Joel Osteen, Joseph Prince. Undoubtedly you're familiar with many if not maybe all of these names. And it dominates what we see today on Christian, quote unquote, Christian cable and satellite television. Networks such as TBN, Daystar, 
the Inspiration Network, LaSia Broadcasting, The Word Network, and any number of other local, quote-unquote, Christian outlets. Word Faith Theology is not 100% of what you see on Christian television, but it is the vast, vast majority of it. I would say upwards of 95% of what you see on Christian television is this health and wealth, name it and claim it, prosperity gospel. NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, this is a twin movement of the word faith movement. And it's, they have far more in common than they do different or indifference. But the New Apostolic Reformation movement is everything that word of faith is even worse. They have even more emphasis on miracles and signs and wonders and modern-day apostles and things like this. So uh, there's, there's a little bit of distinction, but not a great deal of difference, if, if you understand what I'm saying. They're, they're basically one and the same, but a little bit of distinction. And we'll kind of be treating both of these as kind of one and the same, because that's basically what they are. And as an itinerant preacher, an evangelist, I hesitate to call myself an evangelist because you automatically think of the very people that I'll be critiquing in this movement. But as an itinerant preacher, uh, I go all across the United States and I travel around the world teaching against this movement. And I can tell you, because I've been all around the world, that the prosperity gospel is the face of Christianity in most of the world today. It is the face of Christianity in most of the world today. Uh, the United States of America has created this theology, and now we have exported it to the rest of the world. And now around the world you have indigenous prosperity preachers who have learned the tricks of the trade by watching American Christian television, and, and they have learned how to do this, and now they are exploiting their own little flocks in countries all around the world. And I've been to Central and South America. I've been to Africa. And I can tell you, as bad as the Word of Faith movement is here, it's even worse. It's even more prevalent in other parts of the world. Now, just briefly, to give you a little bit of background information, how I first became interested and exposed to this movement, I was born with cerebral palsy. And when I was a teenager, a neighbor of mine came up to me, and he said, Justin, God has spoken to me and he's told me that he's going to heal you as long as you have enough faith. And at age 16, this really resonated with me. I wanted to be healed. I wanted to walk. I wanted to run. I wanted to be able to play sports, play football like my friends were doing. So I really latched on to that. And uh, I, I was not even a Christian at the time. I thought that I was, but I wasn't. And uh, he, this neighbor of mine told me that a faith healer who was, was coming to my hometown of Vicksburg, Mississippi, by the name of Nora Lamb, and so I went to see Nora Lamb, fully convinced I was going to be healed. And obviously, that didn't turn out so well. I was not healed. I'm still crippled. And some have made the charge against me that the reason that I do these seminars is because I'm bitter. I'm bitter that I wasn't healed when I was a teenager going to see Nora Lamb and R.W. Schambach and, and a few others. Uh, dear friends, let me tell you that nothing could be further from the truth. If I have to live the rest of my life with cerebral palsy, that's fine. I've got all of eternity to live without it. So there's not a bitter bone in my body about not being healed. I will not say that this is a good thing 
that I went to see the faith healers. In and of itself, it was not a good thing, but God is sovereign over all things, even those things which are not good. He is sovereign over those, and in his providence, he, is, he, is, uh, he used that to, to introduce me to this movement and kind of set me on the track that I'm on now. It was years later that I began to study this movement at a more academic level. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the prosperity gospel is not Christian at all. The Word of Faith movement, New Apostolic Reformation movement, these movements are not grounded in historical Christianity. These movements are grounded in the metaphysical cults, such as Christian science, New Age, New Thought, Gnosticism, Kabbalah even. And what you have today on Christian television is not Christian. It's cultic. It's cultic theology that has been wrapped in a bit of Christian lingo, a little Christianese, to make it appear to be Christian, when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. So what I want us to do in this introductory session, we're not going to talk about the Word of Faith movement, NAR per se, uh, but what I want us to do is just talk about the importance of discernment. The title of this introductory session is The Duty of Discernment. What is discernment? What does the Bible have to say about it? And then we will answer some of the common criticisms that people will raise against us if we warn others about false teachers, if we encourage people to be discerning, not everybody's going to like that. And so we'll look at some of the common criticisms that people raise, and then we will answer these criticisms biblically. So what is discernment? Well, according to Webster, discernment is the quality of being able to grasp or comprehend what is obscure, and it stresses the power to distinguish or select what is true or appropriate. So being able to sift through truth from error, right from wrong. Charles Spurgeon once spoke of discernment, and he said, and it's interesting, he said discernment is not so much being able to uh, tell the difference between truth and error, but from truth and almost truth. And uh, indeed, theologically speaking, I think that is exactly right. But what does the Bible have to say about discernment? Well, quite a bit. The biblical terms for discernment, the primary word in the Hebrew language is the word ben. And ben means insight, understanding. It means to separate things from one another at their points of difference in order to make a distinction. And this word ben is used some 250 times throughout the Old Testament. So discernment is a prominent theme in the Old Testament, and especially so in the New Testament. The primary word in the Greek language in the New Testament in the noun form is the word diacrisis. And diacrisis means a distinguishing a clear discrimination, judging. Oh, well, I didn't think we were supposed to judge as Christians. Well, we'll look at that in just a little bit. And then the verb form of the same word is a word anachrono, and it means to distinguish, to separate out, to test. Dear friends, we are to test all things, 1 Thessalonians 5.21. We're to test all things, and that's not written there just to take up the white spaces. It's there for a reason. We are to test everything through the lens of Scripture. We are to test ourselves, are we not? We are to examine ourselves to see if we are truly in the faith. And so discernment is not an option for the Christian. It's not an option. It is a mandate for us to be discerning. Now, some people, upon their conversion, are given the spiritual gift of discernment. There is a spiritual gift of discernment, and some Christians have that as their primary spiritual gift. But for most of us, 
we don't have the gift of discernment. And contrary to what a lot of people think about me, I don't have the gift of discernment. I don't think that that's my primary spiritual gift. But you know what? Just because it's not our gift, that's not an excuse not to exercise discernment. You may not have mercy as your primary spiritual gift either, but guess what each and every one of us can do? We can all still do what? Show people mercy. We can all still exercise mercy. So it's just an excuse. It's a cop-out to say, oh, well, discernment, you know, that's just not my thing. That's not my gift. I'm going to leave that for somebody else. No, it's incumbent upon all of us to exercise discernment. It's not an option. It is our duty as believers to exercise discernment. One of the things that false teachers, one of the things that makes false teachers so very dangerous and so appealing is that not everything that false teachers teach is false. Some of it's right. But there is enough heresy mixed in with it to corrupt the entire thing. And I have here a little bottle of water. I got Somebody must have really thought I was thirsty. I got four bottles of water up here. But I got a little bottle of water here, up here. And this water is fine. I could drink this water. What if I were to put, up just a, put in just a uh, couple of drops of strychnine into this water? Then should I drink it? No. It would kill me. Graveyard dead. 99.9% .9 of it would be perfectly fine, but there would be enough poison in it to do me great harm. And the same can be said of the Word of Faith movement, though the percentage of error and heresy in the Word of Faith movement far, far higher than in this illustration of the water. The quintessential passage for discernment in the New Testament undoubtedly is Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Acts chapter 17, verse 11. The Bible says that the Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, searching the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. The Apostle Paul and Silas were out preaching the gospel, preaching Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament Messianic prophecies. They came to the city of Thessalonica, or Thessaloniki in the Greek, and in Thessaloniki, Paul and Silas were not received well at all. Few people did, but most did not. And so they were basically forced to leave Thessaloniki, and then they came to the city of Berea. And in Berea, Paul and Silas had a much more receptive uh, welcome in Berea. And it, notice that the Bible says that the Bereans were considered more noble. Now, why? Why were the Bereans considered more noble than those in Thessaloniki. Well, I think we have three indications in this one verse of Scripture as to why the Bereans were more noble. Number one, the Bereans were considered more noble because they studied the law. They were students of God's Word. Dear ones, we must be good students of the Word of God. God has revealed Himself to us in His Son, Jesus Christ, and we have a perfect, inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient record of that in his word. And we cannot know God apart from knowing his word. So we must be good students of the word of God. And yet today for the vast majority of professing Christians, the vast majority of professing Christians will come to church on Sunday and they might bring their Bibles with them, might, but if they do, that's pretty much the extent of it. During the week, they rarely, if ever, pick it up. 
Or if they do, it's just kind of in a casual sense. They don't really study God's Word. A lot of people may go home and they may read some little ditty out of chicken soup for the soul and think they're getting their spiritual nourishment from the week. If that's your spiritual nourishment, dear ones, then you are starving. We must be good students of God's Word. And it's sad today, it's tragic today, that for so many people, professing believers, the terms doctrine and theology have almost become bad words. And most people today have an attitude like this. You may have heard somebody say something like this, well, well, I don't need doctrine. I don't need theology. I just love Jesus. That is a foolish statement. That is a foolish statement. Dear friends, if we love Jesus as much as we profess to love him, then don't you think we would want to get to know him? And the only way to get to know him is by knowing him in his word. And it is sound doctrine. It is right theology that deepens our knowledge of God. And when our knowledge of God is deepened, that enables our love for God to be deepened. And yet so many people today, so many professing Christians, have somehow separated knowledge of God and love for God. And most people think, well, you got your knowledge of God over here. You got your doctrine and theology, all that stuff. You got that over there. But over here, you see, you got your love for God. You know, they've separated these things. And yet the Bible does not do that. Philippians chapter 1, verse 9. The Apostle Paul says this, In this I pray that your love would abound still more and more in what knowledge and discernment. The Bible never separates knowledge of God and love for God. The Bible always combines these things. And so all of these people running around talking about how much they love Jesus, and yet they don't ever read their Bibles, they don't study their Bible, they don't study to show themselves approved unto God, then I would submit to you that they don't love Jesus nearly as much as they profess to love him. Because if we did love him, we would want to get to know him. And the only way to get to know him is by knowing him in his word. And men, I want to address the fellas here for just a minute. I want to chase a rabbit just for a second. Men, it is our responsibilities to be the spiritual leaders in our home. It's our responsibility to be the spiritual leader in our homes. And men, being the spiritual leader in the home does not simply mean taking your family with you to church on Sunday morning. That's not being the spiritual leader. But most guys think that. They think, oh, well, if I bring my family to church on Sunday morning, that's being the spiritual leader. Or if I say the blessing over the evening meal, that, that's really going the extra mile. You've barely scratched the surface, guys. Being the spiritual leader in the home means that it is our responsibility, men, to teach the Word of God to our wives and to our children. It's our responsibility to do that. Do you know studies show, these numbers are a bit hard to quantify, of course, but studies show that somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of children who are raised in evangelical homes. We're not talking about Roman Catholics. 
We're not talking about Roman Catholics. Evangelical homes. Raised in evangelical homes, and they make professions of faith in Christ at early ages, five, six, seven, eight, nine years old. They get baptized. They're raised in church. Once they grow up and they leave home, they go off to college or they start their own uh, adult lives, start their own families. Once they leave home, guess what else they're leaving? They're leaving the church. And they're not coming back. Oh, but they got saved. They got baptized. They may have been baptized, but they were not saved. They were not saved. A genuine Christian can stray from the Lord for a season, but not indefinitely. If you truly belong to Christ and you stray from him, you know what he's going to do to you? He's going to put you in Hebrews chapter 12. He's going to discipline you. He's going to take you out to the woodshed, and he will bring you back. He will bring you back. And so all these kids that are growing up making professions of faith at early ages, grow up, leave the home, no evidence of conversion in their life, yeah, they may have been baptized, but they were not converted. And men, the responsibility of this in large part, not in totality, but in large part, lies at our feet. Because what has happened is that ever since probably the, well, I guess you could say it started with Charles Finney, but beginning really in the 1930s, 40s, and, and has gotten progressively worse since then, the vast majority of men, Christian men, have exported their spiritual responsibilities to the Sunday school teacher or to the youth group leader. And men think, oh, well, my kids are getting everything they need in Sunday school. My teenagers are getting everything they need in the youth group. No, they're not. Men, God has designed you and me to be the spiritual leader in our homes, and that means teaching God's Word to our families, to our wives, to our children. Read with me. Deuteronomy chapter 11, a, a parallel passage is in Deuteronomy 6 as well, but Deuteronomy 11, God speaking, You shall therefore impress these words of mine on your heart and on your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontals on your forehead. You shall teach them to your children talking of them when you sit in your house, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Men, are you doing this? Are you teaching the Word of God to your families, to your children, to your wives? Are you doing this? The very best Sunday school teacher, with the very best of intentions, cannot do what God has designed you and me to do. Can't do it. And man, don't misunderstand me. I'm not against Sunday school. I'm, I'm not against that at all. But what I am against is that being the only source of biblical instruction for your children. The primary source of biblical instruction for your children, men, should be coming from you. Sunday school should just supplement this, but it should be coming from you because God has designed you and me to do these things. Now, it is possible that a man can do everything right, and I've seen, I, I know some men like this, who godly men, and they taught their children. They taught them sound doctrine, and once they grow up, the children still apostatize. But the vast majority of men just are not doing this, and men, we've got to do this. Be the spiritual leader in your home. Teach the Word of God. Study it yourself. You cannot teach what you do not know. Study it yourself. Teach it to your wives. Teach it to your children. Guard your marriages, men. Guard your marriages. That's being the spiritual leader in the home. Also, the Bereans were considered noble 
because they receive the gospel with ready, engaged minds. One of the things that you'll notice about false teachers is that false teachers actually encourage people to disengage their minds. And they'll say, if you really want to go deep with God, if you want to get to the deep, secret, hidden things of God, you've got to disengage rational thought. Put the old noodle up here in park. Watch this video clip from quote-unquote apostle Guillermo Maldonado. Watch this. And I can give you a list. Uh, faith has been supplanted by reason. Today, we don't do anything unless we understand it. When the, if you go to the scripture, every act of miracle of God, it cannot be explained. That's what supernatural means. Something that cannot be explained is beyond your head, is beyond your reason. If you want to receive your miracle now, you need to disconnect your head. <laughs> and your reason has its place. I'm not saying you're stupid, that we have to be stupid. That's not what I'm saying. But you can't get into the supernatural. You cannot move in the supernatural by, by the reason. Oh. So if you want to move in the supernatural, then you've got to disconnect your head. Is this what the Bible tells us to do? No. Jesus says we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind. He gave us a mind for a reason. He wants us to use it. We are to study to show ourselves approved unto God. You want to so, show yourself approved unto God? Read, study, and obey His Word. Read, study, and obey His Word. The Bible never enjoins us to disconnect our heads when it comes to the things of God. Not at all. And by the way, I have this term apostle in quotation marks because, dear friends, there are no more apostles today. There are no more apostles. Revelation 21, verse 14, describing the new Jerusalem, on which, is, which is built on the 12 foundation stones, on which are inscribed the names of the 12 apostles. So all these people running around today calling themselves apostle this and apostle that, uh, no, you're not. Uh, thank you very much for applying, but the quota has already been filled. So no more apostles today. We'll talk more about that tomorrow. Also, the Bereans were considered noble because they tested what they heard by the Scriptures. Even though they received Paul and Silas, they received what they were teaching, notice that they did not take what Paul and Silas were preaching at face value. It says they searched the Scriptures to see if these things were really so, to see if what Paul and Silas were preaching about Jesus really did plumb with the Old Testament Messianic prophecies. And I would encourage you not to take what a preacher preaches at face value. Search the scriptures to see if these things are really so. And I would encourage you not to take what I teach you over the next couple of days at face value. Search the scriptures to see if these things are really so. Because I'm not the authority. God's word is. Why do we need discernment? We need discernment so that we will not be like children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. Dear ones, we are living in a day and age today in which there are many winds of doctrine blowing about us. And if we do not have discernment, then we will be tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine that comes along. Most people today, at least most professing believers today at some level 
know what they believe, in, at least in a rudimentary fashion. They may at some level know what they believe, but they really don't know why they believe it. And you ask a lot of professing Christians today, well, why are you a Christian? Or, or why do you believe the Bible? Well, I was raised that way. Hope you got a better answer than that. Friends, we need to know what we believe, and we need to know why we believe it. And if we don't, we'll be tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, Paul says. Just because someone has a popular best-selling book, just because someone has their own Christian television show, does not necessarily mean that that person can be trusted to be a faithful expositor of God's Word. There are a lot of men and a lot of women out there who are trying to trick us. And I want to chase a rabbit, another rabbit, just for a moment. Notice, to whom does the Apostle Paul compare those people who are easily tossed to and fro? Who does he compare them to? Children. Children. Dear friends, nothing is in the Bible by mistake. The Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, compares people who are easily tossed to and fro to children. Why? Because children are easily tossed to and fro. And parents, you know this. You can tell a little child just about anything you want to. Chances are he's going to believe it. What captures a child's attention one week the next week may be completely disinteresting to them. They're easily tossed to and fro. Parents, be very, very, very careful when your little five, six, seven, eight, nine year old child comes up to you and says, Mommy and Daddy, I've asked Jesus into my heart. Uh, I want to be baptized. Be very, very careful. Remember the statistics? Two-thirds to three-quarters of these children who make these decisions, once they grow up, they leave home, they leave the church, no evidence of conversion in their life. When you look through the language of salvation in the New Testament, it is rather adult-sounding language, is it not? Deny yourself. How many little kids do you know who deny themselves? How many adults, for that matter, do you know who deny themselves? Take up the cross. We have really lost sight of the impact of those words from our Savior, take up the cross. Nowadays, when we think of taking up the cross, we just think of making it through some tough times. I've had a few people over the years come up to me, well-meaning but quite misguided, and they'll say, they've said things like this, Justin, you bear your cross well referring to my handicap, my cerebral palsy. Dear friends, my cerebral palsy is not a cross. Your cancer is not a cross. Losing your job is not a cross. Having your house burned down, that's not a cross. Are these tough times? Yes. Are they trials? Yes. Is that what Jesus meant when he said, take up the cross? No, not at all. When Jesus said, take up the cross 2,000 years ago, people knew exactly what he meant because they had seen crosses in action. A cross was a place of death. A cross was an instrument of execution. 
And so when Jesus said, take up the cross 2,000 years ago, oh, people knew exactly what he meant. Oh, yeah, they knew back then. Today, very few of us do. Jesus was saying, you must be willing to die for the gospel if called upon to do so. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says, whoever does not hate his father, mother, wife, sisters, brothers, his own children, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Now, is Jesus saying we literally have to hate members of our own family in order to be a Christian? Of course not, because that would contradict everything else in Scripture. But what Jesus was saying is that if we truly belong to him, if we are his doulos, if we belong to him or we are regenerate in Christ, then the love we have for Christ, the devotion we, ha we have for the Savior should be so complete, should be so unconditional, that even the love that we have for our own family members would look like hatred by comparison. By comparison. That's a high bar. But that is the language of salvation in the New Testament. We can't pretend like Jesus didn't say it. He did. That's what a Christian looks like. It is rather adult-sounding language. Children are easily tossed to and fro. They don't have any life experience on which to fall back to, to uh, evaluate things and count the cost. They, they just can't do that. It's not their fault. They just don't have enough life experience. And it, the language of salvation is adult-sounding language. Now, am I saying that God cannot save a child? No, I'm not saying that at all. Am I saying that God doesn't save children? I'm not saying that either. But I am saying he's not doing it nearly as often as what our baptismal records indicate. I am saying that. And I am saying that we must be very, very careful. Very careful. There's a big difference between a childlike faith and a childish faith. Big difference. Big difference. You know, the Bible compares conversion, salvation, to being a soldier. Compares being a Christian to being a soldier. Um, how many little seven, eight-year-old boys do you know who are ready to join the army? It compares... It uses the analogy of being, being in Christ as being in a marriage relationship. Being in a marriage relationship. If, if your little eight-year-old girl comes home from school one day and little Sally Sue comes home and she says, Mommy, Daddy, Mommy, Daddy uh, I'm going to marry Billy Bob. Billy Bob's my boyfriend and, and we're going to get married. You know, you would think, oh, that's, that's cute, right? You know, your little second grader is... Got a little puppy love, and that's cute, right? But chances are you probably wouldn't be getting on the phone, calling up the church, and reserving it for the happy occasion. Is your little eight-year-old girl sincere? Yes, as sincere as a little eight-year-old girl can be about such matters. But be careful. I'm not saying discourage your children. Encourage your children. If your child professes faith in Christ... Encourage them in that. Say, that's good. That's wonderful. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so thankful to see God at work in your life, and so let's continue to study. Let's grow together. And you watch that child. You give that child an extended period of time, and you watch them. 
Watch them to see if they bear fruit in keeping with repentance. You know what's interesting about conversion is conversion should look pretty much the same in everybody, regardless of their age. Whether you're talking about a senior adult at age 80 or an eight-year-old child, conversion should look the same. There should be a change in that person's life. There should be a godly sorrow over sin. There should be a hunger and thirst for righteousness. There should be a desire to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There should be an increasing pattern of holiness in that person's life. Genuine repentance. There should be a love for the brethren. If God saves a child, that child does not get a junior Holy Spirit. He gets the same Holy Spirit that we all get. And so watch your child. Give them an extended period of time. See if you see these things in their lives. Don't rush them off to the baptistry. One of the ways that you'll be able to tell if conversion has really happened, taken place in your child's life, is how he or she deals with sin and temptation. You're not going to tempt a seven-year-old boy with booze and illicit sex, sex outside of marriage. Seven-year-old boy, no, not likely. Add 10 years to that, then you will. See how they do when the world starts to tug on them. Be very careful. Be very careful. Also, we need discernment because discernment is one of the marks of spiritual maturity. Hebrews chapter 5, the writer of Hebrews says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. Why was it hard to explain? Because the content was so difficult? No, because his readers had become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to do what? To discern good and evil. One of the signs of a mature Christian is a discerning Christian. You cannot lack spiritual discernment and be a mature person in Christ at the same time. It's just not possible. And don't shoot the messenger. I'm just reading this thing to you. A couple of years ago, I got an email from a gentleman. He and his wife were in Las Vegas, Nevada. And I have some little gospel tracks that look like million-dollar bills. And on the front of the uh, million-dollar bill is a caricature. Instead of a president, I've got a caricature of Joel Osteen. And Joel Osteen, as you know, is the pastor of Lakewood Church here in Houston, Texas, largest church, quote-unquote, church in the United States of America. Joel Osteen has not once, not twice, not three times, but has repeatedly denied that Jesus is the only way to be saved. He has repeatedly done this. Joel Osteen, by his own definition, does not preach on sin. He'll tell you that. I don't preach on sin. Well, how do you preach the gospel if you do not preach on sin? And all of his sermons are just alike. If you've listened to one sermon from Joel Osteen, you've heard them all. All of his sermons are like this. God loves you. He wants to bless you, and, and uh, he's going to bless you and prosper you. You're a victor, not a victim. You just heard the entirety of his theology. And on the back of my gospel tracts, I've got the real gospel. 
This gentleman and his wife are in Las Vegas, Nevada, apparently on the strip, and somebody had some of my gospel tracts, have no idea who, and they were passing them out on the strip. And this couple got one, and they looked at it, they turned it over and read it, and they were very offended. And this gentleman emailed me, and he said, uh, told me the story how they came across it, and he said, my wife and I are 72 years old, we have both been Christians for over 50 years. We love Joel Osteen. And I said, I responded, I said, Sir, I'm concerned for you. You know, this man says that he and his wife have been Christians for over half a century, and they think Joel Osteen is a good preacher? Something's wrong. Friends, if the Holy Spirit of God is strong enough to save us, he is also strong enough to deliver us out of deception. And the fact that they could be Christians for over half a century and they think Joel Osteen is a good preacher, I would leave his church out of sheer boredom because all of his sermons are alike. Something's wrong. And I told him, I said, Sir, I'm concerned for you. All these people who say that they've been Christians for 5, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years and yet they've got no discernment, Something is wrong. Something is wrong. Now, we wouldn't expect a brand new Christian right out of the gate with no background of Bible knowledge to have a great deal of discernment. Right out of the gate, they probably won't. They should have a little. They should have some. But right out of the gate, they're not going to have a lot. But if you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, you know what he's going to do? He's going to create in you a desire to know Christ, and you will, you will feed that desire, feel that desire by reading and studying God's Word, and when you start to read and study God's Word, guess what? You're going to develop. You're going to develop discernment. You won't be able to avoid it any more than you would be able to avoid getting wet when you jump into a swimming pool. It's going to happen. So all these people that are following Joel Osteen and some of these other happy, clappy, feel-good preachers, something's wrong. How important is discernment? Romans chapter 1. This is a sobering passage of Scripture. The Apostle Paul says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, Violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, undiscerning. Notice in this same list of sins, horrific sins, sins that uh, hopefully most of us, if not all of us in this room, would recoil from, right in the same list of sins, undiscerning, undiscerning. That's sobering, is it not? And dear friends, let's keep in mind that Paul here is not talking about backslidden Christians. That's not even a term that the New Testament uses for Christians, backslidden. He's not talking about that. He's talking about lost people. He's talking about people who have been given over to a debased mind. So a lack of discernment at best, at best, is a sign of spiritual immaturity or at least at least spiritual youth, you know, maybe with a brand new Christian. But it could be a sign of spiritual death. It could be a sign that that person's not even converted.
Because again, if you are indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, you will read and study God's Word. And when you read and study God's Word, over time you will develop discernment. That's a sobering passage of Scripture. Also, we need discernment because the last days will be marked by unsound doctrine. The Apostle Paul says, For the time will come when people will no longer endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall turn aside to fables. The Apostle Paul tells us that the time will come when people will no longer endure sound doctrine, and that is exactly where so many professing Christians are today. Most professing Christians don't want to hear anything about sin, righteousness, repentance. Most people just want to be told what they want to hear. They want to be told they can have their best life now. They can have their purpose-driven life. God's going to give them a better car and a nicer home, and he's going to help them to lose weight the Jesus way and just bless their socks off. But they don't want to hear anything about denial of self, taking up the cross, genuine repentance. No, they just want to be told what they want to hear. They just want to have their ears tickled. And that is exactly what these prosperity preachers do. As an example of this, let me show you video clip from Joel Osteen. I'm going to, well, this from Joel Osteen. And in dealing with people for several years, thousands of people, one thing I can tell you is 99.9% .9 of people are not bad people. They may make poor choices, but deep down, they've got a good heart. Joel Osteen says that one thing he can tell us is that 99.9% .9 of people are not bad people. Well, what does the Bible have to say about this? There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who does good, no, not one. Friends, 99.9% .9 of people are not good people. 100% of people are bad people. You're a bad person. You are. You're a bad person. So am I. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all broken God's laws. We are all liars. Let God be true and most men liars. Let God be true and every man a liar. We've all told lies. Almost all of us have stolen something. The value of the item doesn't matter. We've taken something that does not belong to us. So guess what? We're thieves. We're liars. We're thieves. We're blasphemers. We have blasphemed God's name in word and deed. We are adulterers at heart at least. We're not good people. We're not good people. And Joel Osteen says that, well, they may make poor choices, but deep down they've got a good heart. Well, Isaiah would beg to differ. Excuse me, Jeremiah would beg to differ. He says, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately what? Wicked. Who can know it? I heard a um, Baptist preacher one time a few years ago. He encouraged his entire church to follow their hearts. He said, just follow your heart. Please don't do that. Don't follow your heart. Your heart will deceive you. Live in obedience to the word of God. Live in obedience to God's word. Answering the critics. Not everybody is going to like what you do if you warn others about false teachers and 
you encourage people to be discerning, not everybody's going to like that. So I'd like us to look at some of the common criticisms that people will raise, and then we will answer them biblically. Judge not. Judge not, lest ye be judged, one of the most often misquoted, taken out of context passages in all of God's word. Uh, this is probably the most well-known Bible verse anywhere in the 66 books of Scripture. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Even lost people know this one. Well, what is the answer to this? The, in fact, we are to judge safely within biblical parameters. Dear friends, when Jesus said judge not, he was talking about hypocritical judging. Judging somebody for doing something uh, that maybe we are really doing ourselves, that's what he warns us against. But when it comes to matters of doctrine, when it comes to matters of theology, we absolutely are to judge on these things safely within biblical parameters. And Jesus get, tells that, uh, gives that command even in the same chapter, Matthew chapter 7. Another criticism is this. You shouldn't name names. shouldn't name names. Uh, people say, well, it's one thing to warn about a false teaching, but don't ever call somebody out as a false teacher publicly by their name. Don't, don't do that. Well, fact of the matter is, is that there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name. The Apostle Paul did so himself on several occasions, and he did so quite publicly. So did the Apostle John, by the way. Even Jesus, Herod, that fox. So there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name. Now, it should not be done lightly, okay? It should not be done if somebody, you find somebody that differs with you on some relatively minor theological point. But when it comes to the fundamental doctrines of historical Christianity, the preexistence of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, the sinless life, the atonement on the cross, uh, bodily resurrection of Christ, ascension of Christ, return of Christ, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. On these issues, we do draw a deep line in the sand. And all of the individuals that we'll be looking at the uh, rest of tonight and tomorrow, all of these individuals have been teaching jaw-dropping heresies for years, some of them for decades. They have been called on it, and yet they remain unrepentant. So there is a biblical precedent for calling out false teachers by name. We must warn the flock about wolves in sheep's clothing. Another criticism is this. Well, you're just, you're just causing division. You know, this seminar is so divisive. The answer to this is that it is false doctrine that causes the division. False doctrine causes the division. Romans chapter 16, the Apostle Paul says, Now I urge you, brethren, mark those who cause divisions and hindrances contrary to the what? To the doctrine which you learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own belly. And by good words and fair speeches, deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Dear friends, it is not those who preach the truth that cause division. It's those who preach error and heresy that cause division in the church. Truth does divide. Truth divides the sheep from the goats. But within the body of Christ... Truth should always unite. It is false doctrine. It's heresy that causes 
the division. Another criticism is this. Well, you just can't deny the signs and wonders. This movement, the Word of Faith and New Apostolic Reformation, they have signs and wonders. You can't deny the signs and wonders. And the answer to this, oh, yes, you can. Oh, yes, you can. I'll show you one example of a quote-unquote sign and wonder. In just a second, let me show you this verse of Scripture first. Matthew 24, 24. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, this verse is eschatological in nature, but nonetheless, the principle is true. There will be false Christ, false prophets, and they will show signs and wonders. And they won't be just pulling a rabbit out of a hat. These will be impressive signs and wonders. And yet they will be lying signs and wonders. A lot of what you see is smoke and mirrors. I'll give you one example of this. I'm about to show you two video clips, and I'm going to put them side by side. The first video clip is taken from Bethel Church in Redding, California, pastored by Bill Johnson. Bill Johnson is one of the leaders in the NAR movement. Bill Johnson's church is known for their emphasis on signs and wonders. They say that they have angel feathers that fall out of the sky. They claim that their students in their Bible college, their little Bible school, they say that their students are passing through walls, walking on water. Now you would think in a day and age in which everybody and their dog just about has a smartphone, that somebody would have video of these students walking on water, right? You would, I mean, I would take video of that. Nobody seems to have any video of it. But they make the claim. And they say that gold dust comes out of the sky. It's the Shekinah glory of God. I want to show you a video clip of this gold dust that's supposedly from heaven. And side by side that video clip, I'm going to show you a video clip from a rock concert. The church service, the Shekinah glory of God gold dust, that occurred in 2012, this particular video clip, 2012. The rock concert, I'll show you, 2011, one year before. So as you watch these clips, uh, ask yourself, hmm, wonder where they might have gotten this idea. Is it a glory cloud? Or is it glitter? to see in those clips, but they look exactly alike. So this glory cloud that was in Bethel Church, there's no glory about it. It was stationary glitter that they put in the ventilation system. Lying signs and wonders. A lot of what you see in the charismatic movement is smoke and mirrors. It is, it is chicanery. Some, some of what you see in the charismatic movement is demonic. It is absolutely demonic. Another criticism is this. Well, we should just follow Gamaliel's advice. Well, who in the world was Gamaliel? Gamaliel was a Pharisee. He was Saul's instructor before Saul was converted and became known as Paul. 
But you might remember in Acts chapter 5, this was before Saul's conversion. In Acts chapter 5, Peter and the apostles were preaching in Jerusalem. They had been warned not to preach in the name of Christ. They did so anyway. They were thrown into prison. God delivered them out of prison. They continued to preach the gospel because they had to obey God rather than man. They were causing quite a stir there in Jerusalem. And so the Pharisees got together, and they had a little meeting, a little powwow, to try to decide what they were going to do with Peter and the apostles. So we read about it here in Acts chapter 5. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all of the people, stood up in the council, and he gave orders to put Peter and the apostles outside for a short time. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all of those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So even though a lot of people may not know to call it Gamaliel's advice, they kind of still have this general approach to questionable teachers. They'll say, well, you know, if, if these prosperity preachers or emergent preachers or name your favorite heresy, if they're not of God, they won't last. You know, they'll just be a flash in the pan. They won't last. God will take care of them. But on the other hand, if they are of God, then we should not oppose them. Because in so doing, we would be found in opposition to God himself. So let's just kind of have a laissez-faire approach, you know, a hands-off approach. If they're not of God, they won't last. God will take care of them. But if they are, we shouldn't oppose them. Now, that sounds like reasonable advice, does it not? You could even say that that sounds like spiritual advice. That's a very spiritual thing to say. Uh, Dr. Michael Brown used Gamaliel's advice as an argument against the Strange Fire Conference a couple of years ago. But Gamaliel's advice is very bad advice for two big reasons. Number one, Gamaliel was not a believer. So to follow the advice of Gamaliel is to follow the advice of a lost person. Generally not a real good idea to do when it comes to matters of spiritual importance. We have no indication that Gamaliel ever came to a saving knowledge of Christ. And we can safely say at this time, in Acts chapter 5, he certainly was not. But number two... Gamaliel's advice doesn't even pass the common sense test because false religions abound. If Gamaliel's advice was good advice, why do we still have Mormonism? Why do we still have Jehovah's Witnesses? Why do we still have Buddhism? Why do we still have Islam? I mean, name your favorite false religion. They've been around for hundreds, some of them for thousands of years. Clearly, they're not of God, and yet they're still here. So when you think about it, Gamaliel's advice, it doesn't even... It doesn't even pass the common sense test. Another criticism is this. When one of these false teachers comes under a little bit of opposition, a little bit of scrutiny, this is almost always how they respond. This is almost like their knee-jerk reaction. Touch not my anointed. Touch not my anointed. Don't criticize me. Well, when you hear this, this is how you can respond. Okay, that's fine. Take not scripture out of context, because that's what they're doing. Touch not my anointed. Is it biblical? Well, it's biblical in the sense that it's in the Bible, but what does it mean? 
Well, let's look at it. Psalm chapter 105. He permitted no man to oppress them, referring to Israel. He reproved kings for their sakes. Touch not my anointed ones and do my prophets no harm. Hmm. Well, it is in the Bible. But what does it mean? Well, in context, the anointed ones refers to Israel's patriarchs and their descendants, not to today's modern preachers, not at all. But here's the real kicker. The word touch actually refers to doing physical harm, not to speaking the truth. You might remember that when David had the opportunity to kill Saul, remember in 1 Samuel, he actually had two opportunities to kill him, one in chapter 24, one in chapter 26. Uh, in one occasion, I believe it was chapter 26, uh, Saul, was, Saul was asleep, and David could have killed him, and he didn't. The other occasion... Saul was um, disposed, shall we say. God, uh, Saul was doing his business. And David cut off a piece of his garment. And what did David do? He, he did that to show that he could have killed him. He cut off a piece of his garment and he held it and he said, I would not touch God's anointed. In other words, David was saying, I would not kill him. So we may be calling into question a lot of false teachers with a lot of different false doctrines, but none of us is chasing Benny Hinn down the street with a baseball bat. You know, we're not trying to do anybody any physical harm. Good thing for the false teachers, by the way, that they're living on this side of the cross because had they been living in the Old Testament of Benny Hinn and all these others, they would have been stoned a long time ago. long time ago. And by the way, there are three passages, at least three passages in the New Testament which refer to all Christians as anointed. You hear all these prosperity preachers, charismatics say, oh, I'm anointed. I have a special anointing. He's anointed. No. Dear friends, if you are, if you are in Christ, if you know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, you've been born again, guess what? You're anointed. And you have the same anointing as does every other Christian. There are no super-Christians with a super-special anointing that the rest of us common knuckleheads just don't have. If you're in Christ, you're anointed. And you have the same anointing, the same access to the same God through the same cross as does every other believer. This whole division of Christians into classes, the, the really anointed and the not-so-anointed, the, you know, the, the haves and the have-nots, you know what that is? That's Gnosticism. It's Gnosticism. It's not New Testament Christianity. Another criticism is this. Well, this is just not loving. You know, it's not a very loving thing to do to tell somebody that they're wrong. That's not loving. Let me give you this illustration. Let's suppose we were to see a blind man walking towards a thousand-foot cliff. Now, we're in southeast Texas, so you have to use your imagination a little bit. But let's just say you're somewhere in the mountains, and you saw a blind man walking towards a thousand-foot cliff. Who among us would sit back and say, um, mm, you know, I don't want to offend him? You know, that, that might hurt his feelings, if I tell him he's wrong. That, that might hurt his self-esteem 
And, and who am I to judge that he's wrong? And so we just, we just sit back and don't say anything, and we watch this man fall off the cliff and plummet to his death. Would any of us in here do that? No, of course not. Every person in here, if we were to see that happening, we would be running up to that man as fast as we could go, shouting at the tops of our lungs, Sir, you are in great danger. You're going the wrong way. Turn around. And yet, don't we do the very same thing, only far worse, with far greater consequences, when we see people going the wrong way spiritually, and we know the truth, but we don't tell them? If you really want to hate somebody, do that. Know the truth. Don't tell them. That's the best way that you could show hatred. If you want to show someone love, we should love them enough to tell them the truth. We should love them enough to tell them the truth. That is the most loving thing that we could possibly do. It is not up to us how that truth is received. It is up to us to communicate it. Okay? And sometimes members of our own family are the hardest ones to speak the truth to, aren't they? Members of our own family, hardest ones to reach oftentimes. But if we truly love them, we should love them enough to tell them the truth. The truth is love. The truth is love. There is a way to speak the truth. Ephesians 4.15, the Apostle Paul says, speak the truth in love. So there, there is a way to do it. The truth can be offensive, but we don't have to be offensive when we communicate it. Speak the truth in love, but speak it. Speak it. Another criticism is this. Well, you know, maybe they're wrong in a few things, but they seem so sincere. Aren't they sincere? Joel Osteen seems so sincere. Dear friends, sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue. The men who flew airplanes into the World Trade Towers were sincere. They were very sincere. But they were sincerely wrong. And right now, they are all too well aware of that. Sincerity is not the issue. Truth is the issue.